you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. While you're turning there, our brother Steve Jackson confessed that he forgot to read the scripture today after he prayed. He did it just then. So he asked me to read it, so I'm not doing this to mock him. I'm going to read it and pray, and then we will dig into 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. And it reads this way. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful that, Lord, the gospel was presented to us and we believed because of the working of your Spirit. We know, Lord, that you have regenerated us and that we will be raised up the last day. And, Father, as a result of that, there is much in our lives that we view much differently than others do because of the assurance that we have from God. Not the least of which, Father, is that our sins have been forgiven and they've been put to the side and we've been reconciled to you. And we have no fear of standing in judgment and being sent to hell because Christ has been punished for us and he has saved us by his grace. So, Father, we ask that this would continue to work deep into our hearts and minds and that, Father, will have a deep and profound effect on our life and our attitude, the way that we live and the way that we approach life. Father, because we believe in Christ, because you have saved us, Father, we recognize that we are to live as those who have been reunited with the Lord, that you have called us to a life of holiness. And so, Father, we ask that as we continue our trek through 2 Corinthians, we ask, Lord, that you will enlighten us, that you help us to grasp those very real things that Paul is talking about here. The Father, we may continue to mature as believers that we will mature spiritually, emotionally, and in every other way. And that, Father, we may be used by you in the lives of others to encourage them, to strengthen them, to be used by you in their life to bless them. Again, Father, we know that you're with us because you promised us that you would never leave us and you would never forsake us. So, Father, as we read the word that you've preserved for us, we ask for your blessing on our time in it today. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, Paul continues to write and says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your faith or that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in, the, and in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. 
So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So as Paul finishes up, he has been talking about this work of grace, which is giving money. That's what he's talking about. He wants them to continue what they were doing, and the idea here is to is to collect some money to be sent to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, they are suffering because of a famine, which we looked at the history of that, as well as that's complicated because of the persecution that's been going on. And so there's, there's dire need here in the church. And so Paul has been encouraging others to, to send money to, to relieve these uh, believers that are living there. And in this particular case, as he speaks to the Corinthians, he has been using the Macedonians as an example. And one of the reasons why he is pointing them out is because they are really very poor. They are physically, financially, they're poor. And yet they have put together a, a great gift to be sent to those in Jerusalem because they love the Lord and because they love his people. We kind of went through a few giving principles that we got out of the first several verses of this chapter. Quick review is that when it comes to the giving of money, which is what we're talking about here, Giving depends really, number one, on our attitude, not on what you and I own. Secondly, giving must be always be done willingly. That's what God desires, that we do so willingly. He's not that we, um, he doesn't desire that we give so grudgingly because we feel that we have to. It's okay to feel that you have to in the sense that we might say, I have to do this because I love them. That's a good kind of have to, but not this kind of have to because, you know, God's going to be upset if I don't. Or others might think I'm cheap if I don't. Um, it's not anything like that at all. Thirdly, uh, we are to consider giving really to be a privilege because we're being a part of the work of God. And we know that we are, if you just think about it for a moment, because God needs nothing we have to meet the needs of others. He can do so in any way he pleases, and he's done so. I mean, remember there was a time when uh, Jesus told Peter to pay the temple tax, and he picked up a fish out of the, out of the water and took a coin out of its mouth. I don't know how many of you fishermen have ever had that happen. Um, I don't fish, but that would be, I would think that would be quite thrilling, um, if that was, especially if it was a gold coin. But nonetheless, uh, the Lord doesn't need us to do that. But it's, so it's a privilege for us to be involved in this work. And then, fourthly, Christian giving is to be based on the character of the giver. In other words, it, it does reflect where we are in our relationship with Christ, the way we handle giving. And then, of course, Along with that, Christian giving, as has been said by many others, is an extension of what is in your soul. In other words, so your attitude and the way that we give uh, reveals where we are in the relationship we have with God. So it reveals our character as well as our standing with the Lord. So with that in mind, look at verse 8. And again, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So if you read this from a paraphrase, it would read this way. Paul is saying, I'm not trying to order you around against your will, but by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. So he's just letting them know that he's not trying to manipulate them, but he is using the Macedonians, and this is the reason. 
He wants these individuals to be encouraged. He wants them to be stimulated. Uh, he wants them to think in terms of, wow, I mean, look what they've done. I, I need to do this kind of a thing. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon and his wife. And it is kind of a story that we should kind of remember that when it comes to maybe scrutinizing what others do with their money, we need to be very careful with that. The idea, again, is that the word of God is really a mirror first. We look at ourselves. And there's a lot of stories about the Spurgeons, but one of the things they did, among many things, is Charles and his wife, they would uh, sell eggs that their chickens laid. I just found out a couple years ago they even had chickens. Not that it's important, but you know, I don't know how he had time for that because of what he did, but I think his wife took care of that most of the time. But they just refused to ever give the eggs away. They sold them. In fact, even if it was someone who was a close relative, uh, if they asked for eggs, they would say, you may have them if you pay for them. As a result of that, there were some people who were pretty upset with the Spurgeons. They, the rumor was they were greedy. They just wanted money. And even though people were criticizing them, they never defended themselves. When she died, when, when Charles' wife died, the rest of the story was revealed. See, all the prophets that came from the selling of the eggs, had, they, they used to support two elderly widows. Never told anyone they were doing that. They just decided, they told the Lord that however the Lord prospered them, they would sell the eggs and all the money would go to make sure these two ladies would be able to make it until the day they died. And so they were unwilling, in a sense, to let the left hand know what the right hand was doing, and so they just endured the attacks in silence. So as always, we should be reminded that when it comes to other people's money, we need to be really very careful uh, how we evaluate what anybody does with their money, um, because often we'll be wrong, and that will be very embarrassing. So Paul here, instead of just assuming certain things, he is telling them this is what he's doing. He says, look, I'm, I'm bringing up the Macedonians on purpose because you, you need to do it. He doesn't know what they're going to give, but he is going to encourage them and he wants to eliminate whatever arguments they have to maybe not give so much uh, beforehand. So Paul did see the enthusiastic generosity of the Macedonian churches as a convenient standard for assessing the genuineness of the Christians or of the Corinthians' professed love for him. So that's the category he was putting it in. He says, this is important to me. You say that you love me. This is what I think that we need to do, and I'm, I'm asking you to do this. Verse 9, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So he is doing this. He is taking what's happened for us spiritually, and he is making a direct connection, really, with their wallet, so to speak. He, you know, there's, there's this idea that our spiritual life and our physical life are separated is unknown in the Bible. It, it's always like this. In other words, uh, if you are a believer in Christ, then God has something to say about the way you treat your wife or the way you treat your husband or the way you raise your children. God has something to say about the way that we handle our money. And so there's, there's not that separation. And he wants us to understand that. So God gives an example of generous giving. What did Jesus give? That is the idea. Now that can be used manipulatively. And Paul's not seeking to manipulate them. And we should not try to use these things to manipulate others to give. But he's just kind of bringing out the truth of the situation. 
And so Jesus, as we know, was really, Jesus is the wealthiest person in the universe because everything belongs to him. It's all his. The Macedonians, in a sense, by contrast, were unbelievably poor, but they gave like they were rich. And though Jesus was rich, he lived like he was poor. And the idea there that all that Paul's doing is trying to provide these two as examples of giving because he wants the Corinthians to look at their hearts when they prepare this gift for the church in Jerusalem. So that's why Paul says in verse 10, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So basically it's finish what you started, that's what he's getting at. When he says, in this matter, I give my judgment, he's basically saying, I'm giving my opinion in this matter. And he's saying that this gift they're going to put together is for their advantage. So it was simply started a year ago. They desire to do this. And he says, you just need to complete it. You need to finish this up. So basically, the Corinthians had undertaken this (laughs) mission project to meet the needs of the poor churches in Judea, in particular Jerusalem. And they had kind of backed off that project when divisiveness occurred in the church. Now, one of the things that, and this is true of this church before I ever got here, that was true of this church always, and I believe God is blessed, is there's always been a very high level of commitment to the missionaries that we support financially. And when the church even has gone through some really severe difficulties that deeply affected the finances, One of their main concerns, and where this church has never failed to meet its obligation, was making sure that the monies that were promised to missionaries were sent. Just so you know, sadly, that is not the case. I've heard from the missionaries that we support, as as well have experienced it in other cases, where when a church begins to go through financial difficulty, for whatever the reason, one of the first things they do is cut off their giving to missionaries. They just cut that off. We'll pick that up again later when we get through this. And so, meanwhile, depending on how the mission is run, because every mission organization is a little different, in some cases, the missionaries will end up being okay, and other places, uh, things begin to happen. And I've told, I won't tell you the stories again, but there was, when I first became a jail chaplain, uh, I had to raise money for support, and all of a sudden, it just dried up like that. And so I had a family, of, there were six of us, I didn't get paid anything. 46 days, not a dime came in. I didn't have any savings either. We, we had nothing. The Lord provided miraculously. So it was fantastic. I'm not saying you should go that route, but the Lord will take care of you. But the idea is, is that is the norm. So here, for whatever the reason, they're going through difficulties. They were, they were into this project and they stopped. So Paul wants them to get back on the stick, so to speak, and complete what they started. And it's important and it's advantageous for them in many different ways. And so it is expedient and beneficial for them personally and for their ministry to recommit themselves to this mission work that they have committed themselves to and, and to do it. And God, and basically he's telling them that God is going to bless them. So verse 12, he says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So when he says the readiness is there, he's speaking really of how large a man's heart is, so to speak his heart attitude, not how large his bank account is. We know that God looks at the heart, which is the quality, not the amount. Paul is referring again to this collection that Titus was to oversee. 
So obviously God does not expect us to give what we do not have. He doesn't expect us to give, expects us to give what we do have, but not out of what we don't have. So when we give according to what we have, then the giving is acceptable and well-pleasing to the Lord. I do think at times, and of course this reflects on how we're growing spiritually, how we view what we have will change as we grow as believers because of our conviction about what is necessary, what is needed, what we need, our dependence on the Lord, what have you. Now, I know whenever it gets to these kinds of things, it can get real touchy. We start talking about how much money someone has in their retirement or how much money they have in their savings. So I'm not trying to alleviate you from discomfort. But at the same time, it is at the same time, it's not my place as an individual to say how much you should or should not have as far as the amount. Okay, that's not my business. It is my business in teaching the word that we understand there's a difference between what we would like to have, what we want for convenience, and what maybe needs to be done as far as whatever needs to be given for particular things. This needs to, we need to make sure that we're viewing that as believers where we are trusting God and not looking at our finances in, the, in maybe in a selfish way. And, so, and that can be hard. It can be very, very difficult. Especially in, you know, there's always the idea, well, we don't know what the future holds. That's true. We have no idea what the future holds. And you probably can never have enough because of what the future. That, you know, it kind of goes back to people have always said, you know, well, well you know, we're going to have children we can afford it. Then you'll never have children because you can never afford it. This is never, it's, you're never going to have enough money for that. The miraculous thing is, is that no matter how expensive they get, when you have children, you'll, you, you'll be able to take care of them. Now, you may be dirt poor when they leave the house, you know, but that's okay. All right, there's nothing wrong with that. All right, it's all right. So, you know, spend away and just take care of your kids and, and don't wait to have kids. Just have them now. Uh, that's from experience because when you get older, you just don't have the stinking energy you need to keep up. Because when all my grandkids come to my house, I mean, I do stir them up and then I send them to bed. Because <laughs> I just, I can't keep going. All right, so, but we do need to make sure that we, that the way we look at our finances it's a, it's a spiritual matter. And we want to make sure that we're looking at it through the eyes of the Lord and what he would have us to do. And it is true that it is not normally really any, anyone else's business. If you are going to ask someone for help or guidance in that area, you need to make sure that it's not that, not that you shouldn't talk to necessarily a financial genius. You need to talk to someone who's mature in the Lord so they can help you ask the right questions because that, that's really what this is about. And so that's, that's this idea then about, about money and giving and all these things that Paul is kind of stressing uh, to these individuals. When it comes to giving in the New Testament, though, remember this. John MacArthur says this. He says, that is why there are no set amounts or percentages for giving anywhere stated in the New Testament. The implication is that if one has much, he can give much. If he has little, he can only give little. That's it. It's the guidelines that we have. Some have asked me before, well, what about tithing, the 10%? Well, it's a good place to start. We also need to remember that if you do study the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers, or the, Old, or Jerusalem, or the, the, the Hebrew people, they did not give 10%, because they had more than one tithe. So they kind of gave anywhere from 23 to 27%. And then I know there's individuals who say, well, what about taxes? You know, we've got to pay all these taxes, and they go through all that stuff. And I just say, in the end, he who has much needs to give much, 
We need to trust the Lord and move forward. And we just go from there. And that's it. Uh, I, we, just, we just, you know, we don't, don't, please don't act. People have done this and they get mad at me sometimes. Well, so how much then should I give? Of course, I could say all of it. <laughs> trust the Lord. <laughs> but, <laughs> and we should trust the Lord. And there may be some who may need to give all of it. Uh, but nonetheless. So again, giving and financial management for the Christian are spiritual issues. There are things that we need to consider that, that non-believers are, are just never going to, to think about um, and never even consider. And that's okay because we're not comparing with them. So Paul goes on. Verse 13, he says this. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. In the Amplified, it says, For it is not intended that, the, that other people be eased or relieved of their responsibility, and you be burdened and suffer unfairly. So what is it that Paul's trying to get at here? Number one, Paul does not mean that our giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. We're not, that's, we're not in the business of helping people have an easy life. That's not what the deal is. All right, we're trying to meet real needs. He, is, he does talk about sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving does need to be responsible. So you are not to neglect your own family and put them in a position of hardship, though at the same time, there may be decisions that you and your family will make to go without certain things to give sacrificially. All right? So there's, there's, there's some things there that you need to think about. All right? So it's, it's not that you're now going to live in hardship like you live in a third world country so someone else can kind of take it easy and maybe go buy a new truck. But the idea is that we want to make sure we're meeting needs and there are times that we are called upon to, to sacrifice. And, and, we, and we need to do that, I think, intentionally it's a great, it's a very important thing to teach to our children, uh, that, that principle, if, if we want them to grow up as mature believers. And we need to do that as mature believers, uh, to, to give sacrificially. Um, and so that's why, again, we want to make sure that we're not just manipulated by, by guilt or manipulated by images and by music or sob stories, that kind of thing. We want, to, we want to do these things where we're thinking about it and we're thinking about what we have and what the future and we're praying and asking God. And yes, there will be times that God will desire that we give maybe what, more than what we think we can afford. But the idea is that he is asking us to trust him. But there's still thought in that, okay? It's not just a blind thing. Um, and so that's why, you know, sometimes in marriages, you know, one person is more deliberate in their thinking, the other one is more just kind of free. And so they may both be moved to, to maybe support something, and the one just wants to write a check out for $1,000 like right now. And the other's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I, let's, let's think about this first. And, and I do think that th that's important for them to work that through. All right? And maybe they do need to give that thousand or, or more. All right? But they need to think about it. And it, it can't be this thing like, oh, I don't know why I did that. Because um, now we can't pay our mortgage. You know, that kind of thing. But also what goes along with this, and this is important, is that there will be times for some people, and maybe it's for more people than we think about, than we, than we thought of, and that is there are times that there are limits placed on what we can give because we've overextended ourselves because of our own bad decisions and selfishness. And so we, we need to remedy that situation. And so we, we need to work to get ourselves, you know, out of debt. And there are, there's, there's different 
uh, views of that. There are some who would say that, that your house mortgage is an acceptable debt. There are some who say that it's not. I don't really have a statement on either one of those things. Um, but I do think that uh, most of us do recognize those things that may be a result of our bad decisions, which were sometimes bad decisions come because of situations we can't help, like truly can't help. That does happen. But oftentimes, at least in our country, it seems that it's just one bad decision after another, and, we, and the next thing we know, we, we're kind of handcuffed uh, because of that. And so we do need, to, and so that then can hurt in our being maybe even able to support something that we think is important. There's nothing we can do. Um, I do think it's a bad idea that if you're in debt, to think that there's a need that's so great, you need to take another credit card and then give off that credit card to that need. Don't do that. Like, well, between us and the Lord, we'll, ta we'll take care of it. You don't need to do that. You need to get yourself out of debt in that, in that situation. Um, but we do need to think soberly about these things. And that really is what Paul's doing. That's what he's challenging these individuals. But he does want them to see here that these two things are intricately tied together. So here are the ideas to think through this, not necessarily put yourself through hardship, depending on, on maybe the kind of sacrifice that you uh, are going to go through, whatever the particular issue may happen to be. So abundance here, as he speaks of their abundance, refers to their personal resources and wealth. And so there's this idea that rather than hoarding it or spending it selfishly, um, you need to be responsible and maybe give more. But again, I'm just speaking in generalities because he is doing that. He's not giving them specifics. He's not saying, they obviously didn't face this, but he's not saying this, you need to cancel the cruise for next summer and the money you would spend on that, you need to give to this. There may be times that that's absolutely true. There may be times that you need to do that. It may not be necessary. That's why I think it's important. We, we try to do this here. I, I do this. Whether we're evaluating missionaries or even when it comes to those we're going to help in a benevolent way, we ask, I ask a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. We get a lot of information. Um, and it's not that I'm looking for a way to get out of something. Some think that's what I'm doing. I'm, what I'm trying to do is assess what is the real need. What really is going on here? I'm really against the knee-jerk reaction. There's, there are times when immediate action may be needed. But oftentimes, the way we face things, we want to be careful we're not giving the knee-jerk reaction. And then... We, actually, we, may, we may actually err in giving a good cause too much, and then a necessary cause, we have nothing. And so we want to make sure that we're looking at that. That's, why, that's also why um, in, in a church, you want to have multiple leaders. It's never just one person making decisions. Because we all have our own things that we like, and so we kind of tend to, to lean that way. And so we need more information and more um, uh, people giving input, that type of thing. That's why also you're encouraged um, to look at things. So like, you know, I mentioned, before, I mentioned last week and Tom mentioned again this morning, uh, looking at that ministry called Thrive. And I, and I do want our church to support that ministry. I want you to become convinced as well that it is important work, they're doing it right, and that we should support it. And so we've supplied you with the websites, told you when they're going to come give a presentation. I want you to be a part of that. I want you to be able to ask questions. All right? we, we may assume from the beginning that it's a pregnancy, pregnancy crisis center, automatically, oh yeah, we need to support that. I would tend to agree, but there's other pregnancy crisis centers that we have not been supporting. There's very specific reasons why, because there's more than just that general thing. And so this one is, I believe, meets the criteria of what we believe needs to be done to fully minister in this kind of situation. 
And so we, it's, it's, a, it's a decision all of us because it's our money. We give money, and then the leadership, you know, we, we make these decisions, and, you know, we, whether we're paying an electricity bill or the missionaries that we support, but this is what we do together. And so this is, this is the causes that we are behind. Uh, and it's a very good thing for us to do that and to be aware of these things. So that's kind of what he's talking about. Charles Hodge says this uh, in light of these things. He says, the scriptures avoid the injustice and the destructive evils of agrarian communism by recognizing the right of property and making all almsgiving optional. It also avoids the heartless disregard of the poor by inculcating the universal brotherhood of believers and the consequent duty of each to contribute of his abundance to relieve the necessities of the poor. At the same time, they inculcate on the poor the duty of self-support to the extent of their ability. They are commanded with quietness to work and to eat their own bread. Now, at one time, when you read some of these older commentaries, and they talk about supporting the poor, you need to remember that what was common before in Europe and in our country is there was no safety net by our government. There were no food stamps. There was nothing. There was no unemployment. None of that existed. The church automatically did those things. They would help take care of those who maybe lost their jobs. They would help feed the poor. They would bring them in, and they, in fact, in some churches, they were fairly elaborate to where what they would do is they, if a, if a man, let's say, lost his job, then the church would take that family. That family would become the responsibility of another family, and that family would not only help feed them, but teach them, like maybe teach them how to farm, teach them how to do some kind of skill so they could work and provide for themselves. That was really the idea. So then when welfare came along, that's why so many Christians were against that idea, because it was just handing out money. There are times when there are those who cannot work and that may need to be done. But in many cases, that is not a really, that's not the best way to handle those who are poor and the difficulties they're going through. And it's been a debate ever since. So that's why now, as, as the church comes along, individuals are trying to help them, because of all the government helps that are out there, that's why there's more questions to find those who are not only truly in need, but what is the real need? You know, what, what, what is it they really need to have that we can help them with here in this situation? So the idea is that there's Christian principles, and one of those is, is that the individual needs, work, work is not a curse. The work was cursed by sin, but work is not a curse, and people need to work, period, unless they're unable. And being unable doesn't mean that, well, he was a carpenter, now he can't be a carpenter. Well, there's other things he can learn to do, and he needs to move in those directions, that kind of thing. All those are biblical principles. So all of that is, has been in the mind of the church through the years. Much of that was even in the mind of Paul, uh, or assumed by Paul when he was writing uh, to believers and, and encouraging them to give money for the saints that were going through this time of suffering and that kind of thing. So all those things are be kind of you know, rotating through our, our minds and our head as we think about these things. So then he, then he goes on and says this, and he just kind of quotes this thing from the Old Testament, and he says in verse 15, And as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What does he mean by that? So Paul is appealing to a principle of equality. That doesn't mean everybody has the same, by the way. Which was practiced by Israel during their wilderness wanderings, as Moses describes in Exodus. So let me read to you a couple of verses, and then we'll kind of explain what Paul meant by that. Exodus 16, verses 17 through 18. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some, they gathered some more, some less. This is the manna that's coming down from the sky, and they would go in the morning and collect it, 
and that would provide their, their food for the day. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So when, when the Lord provided the manna, they were not on uh, a, a restricted caloric um, menu. They were able to, to get as much as they could eat every single morning. That was not the issue. Uh, the issue was their trust in God and obeying him and how they gathered it, and then also how much they gathered. Because uh, there were times that some would gather like three days' worth, and we wake up the next morning, and everything that was extra was rotting and had maggots. Um, and then as was mentioned here, there are those who may not have gathered enough, and there was enough. So there were two ways that people understood how that worked in the Old Testament. So there's the old rabbinic understanding, which I think is correct, but basically the idea was whether the person gathered a great deal or just a little, when they measured it in their tents, it always turned out that what they had collected was exactly what was needed for the entire family to be able to eat. And there was never anything left over, and there was never a deficiency. John Calvin and a few other individuals, they, they said this, that they thought the meaning was is that the manna was gathered, and it was, and everybody, all the families put everything they gathered like together like on a giant table. I don't know what they put it on, but we'll just say it was a giant table. And then they would measure out a certain amount for every family to have, whatever family, whatever they were, was required. And no matter how much these individuals gathered, there was always enough on the table for everyone to have their amount. It always worked out, and so no one was in need, nobody went hungry, and there was nothing that was left over. I think it was more the first one, but basically in the end, there was the superintending care of God, uh, and that was what, um, and that's how God provided for them. So there's this idea, that, again, that God wants us to be a part of his work. In the same way that we share the gospel with individuals and we call them to repentance, but we don't save anybody. God does that. We are, we are the instrument that God is using. If you think about it, in your life, because I know it's true in my life, Almost always, when God meets our needs, he meets our need how? Through other people. Other, and sometimes even through unbelievers. But he, he meets our need through, un, um, for, through other people. Very rarely does something just fall from the sky or come out of a fish's mouth uh, kind of a thing. It can happen, but it just doesn't really happen that often. It's normally in this way. And there's a blessing in it for us when we are involved in that. You know, we, sometimes we feel good that we, we've helped someone out, that God put us in a position to, to maybe bless an individual. And there's just a great encouragement. Uh, in the same way, there's a great encouragement when others maybe meet our need in, in really phenomenal ways. And so it's one of those things that God does for us. It's a great blessing. We see that in our families all the time. You know, when our kids are little, because they don't do this when they're teenagers, but when they're little, they always want to help. You know, when they get older, they try to get out of help. You know, it's like they're, 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 you know, practicing the work for the state. So the idea is, is that, that you know, we, so sometimes we'll give them things to do that may not be much, and we may even have to spend more time cleaning up, but man, they love it. They, 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 why? They feel like they're part of our family. We're doing something together. You know, there's, there's so much that is good for them psychologically and emotionally and in every other way in the relationship with the family. Good or bad. I mean, you know, whether you're going through a difficult time or it's a time of abundance. So it's the same thing with the family of God. And God uses things to bring people together. Maybe people who would not normally have spent any time together, and they're able to bless each other really in tremendous ways. So in the end, the result was is that everyone had enough. 
So here Paul is challenging believers to give generously uh, and give what they had and to not necessarily be concerned for their future. And he does mention that you help them and there may be a time when they're going to help you. You know, and there'll be times that we'll be able to help churches or other ministries or maybe times they'll be able to help us. You know, that's up to the Lord uh, to do. But we don't overly consider uh, necessarily what certain things may cost us just because of the uncertainty of the future. I'll tell you a story about Hudson Taylor. There's a lot of great stories about Hudson Taylor. There's, there's certain men and women in, in, in the past who were great believers and their ministries were tremendous in so many ways and the Lord provided for them really in miraculous ways. And it, it is always exciting uh, to see the hand of God and to see how God is going to do things. So in 1865, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission. I think it's now called the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. It still exists. But he determined to depend on God alone for needed finances. A lot of guys back then did this. To me, this is amazing. And what they decided was this. No newsletters, no nothing. Don't tell anybody what our needs are. We only tell God. And normally, we only find this out after they die. Because their kids say, oh, by the way, or maybe someone from a board meeting says, well, we never published these minutes, but this is what we decided to do. And so he's not the only one who's done this. Uh, but he decided to tell no one but to only tell God. Which really, if you think about it, just for a, just a few seconds, makes whatever happens spectacular. So they're going to depend upon God alone for their needed finance. Remember, he's in the middle of China. There's not a lot of American dollars running around uh, there. So from that day on, there was no direct solicitation of funds at all. But the mission's needs were always met. And they were at times met in unexpected sources and at very critical times, usually in answer to prayer. So according to this story, several years ago, uh, this individual named Phyllis Thompson chronicled uh, the stories of God's faithfulness to this China Inland Mission through this little book that's called Proving God. And the subtitle is, through the, um, through the 90 and more years of its history, although no public or private appeal for funds has ever been authorized, its work and workers have been sustained by an unfailing supply. An example, December 1954. So uh, Hudson Taylor's long been dead, but this ministry continues, and they follow the same example he did, which is by not directly soliciting funds from everyone. So 1954 of December, their funds were very, very low, and the mission had heard of a personal gift that was coming their way from a very wealthy American lady. Now, no one at this ministry had ever remembered meeting the lady, but she had in the past sometimes spent, spent, sent some small donations to their office in London. Now, she had apparently included uh, China and the missionaries in her will, and they were going to receive a check for $5,500. However, it turned out that the money was not for them. It went instead to a Bible school that was organized by the Chinese in the Far East. So, even though the CIM personnel were glad for their Chinese brothers, they did feel very disappointed. But their attention was drawn to a passage in 2 Chronicles. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Within days, another communication came from the woman's estate. And she had remembered them. But it wasn't for $5,500. The amount that was being sent was $75,000, with an additional $60,000 coming later. 
The mission directors met for prayer, and with overflowing and humbled hearts, they sang doxologies to the Lord, thanked the Lord for his goodness, and he's sending them much more than this. And they thank God, and so we can thank God that we serve a Lord that can supply the needs we have in our lives and help us to finish what he has started in us. God does, he does do that. He does. Quick story in our end. We, uh, several years ago, we had an individual in our church who went on a mission trip to Russia. He went by himself, and he came back and reported that there was a uh, town where they were building an orphanage. The, the pastor of this church, they were building this orphanage, they were doing it, the church themselves, they were doing it. They weren't paying anyone else to do it, they were building it themselves, and they basically, as they bought material, they would build this orphanage. The way these orphanages were being run by the churches were so exemplary that at that time, the Russian government was, was wanting to copy what they were doing because they were so successful in turning out kids who basically weren't part of the mafia. You know, they were, they were kids who were, you know, they were hardworking and, you know, good citizens. A lot of good things were coming out of this. And they, have a, they do have a huge problem with, with orphans and that kind of thing. So at this time, so, you know, we were, we were, you know, I knew this was going on, and so I was waiting for this report to see what we could do to help. Well, what took place was while he was gone, someone in our church ended up having some kind of a windfall, and a large amount of money was given to the church. And a good portion of that went to the mission fund. So then when this man came back, he was telling about this, uh, what they were doing and how slow going it was. And the church that, that, that he went with, they couldn't support because they were supporting three other orphanages in other towns that were being built. And so there was, they had no other resources. So I said, I said, well, what do you think that we should do? And he said, well, he said, they need $50,000 to be able to, uh, to finish this, this, this orphanage. And he said, I was, I was hoping that maybe we could give $5,000. And I said, no. And he just, no? I go, no. We need to give 50 grand. He said, what? I said, Lord's been good. So just so you know, at the next deacons meeting, I'm trying to think of all the, all the reasons why we should spend, send 50000 that's a big, that's a lot of money for our church. And so I had a list of about 10 or 11 reasons as to why we need to send $50,000 to help this, this group, um, you know, finish the orphanage. And I've been praying about it, got to the deacons meeting, and so I, I explained to them about this individual from our church, the mission trip, and I said, I believe that we should give them the entire amount $50,000. And I was about to begin the 11 reasons, and one of the deacons rudely interrupted and said, I move, we send $50,000 to this. I second it. All those in favor, I. <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. But then we had the congregation meeting. So, well, there'd be a lot more questions. So, you know, I'm, I'm working hard. Okay, what's the best way to communicate these 11 points, you know, so that people understand we really need to do this because it's a lot of money. And so we had our congregational meeting, and so the motion was made, or it was recommended by the deacons, that we send $50,000 uh, um, to this thing. And then it was read, and immediately someone said, I so move. Second, all those in favor, aye. And then there was one question. How are we going to get the money to them? That was the only question. And we had that all figured out. God provided for us, before we ever really were in the position, 
be able to supply everything that other church needed in Russia. God is great. God is awesome. That's the God that we serve. And so I trust that we'll take these things to heart. Not that you or I will ever receive 50 grand, but I don't know if we need 50 grand. I know we'd like it, but I don't know if we need that. But God can be trusted in all these ways. And so one of the ways to evaluate where you are as a believer is to take a look at how you view your finances, how maybe how tightly you hold on to your money. We want to be smart. We want to think about it. We want to be generous. We want to do what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace, kindness, and love. We thank you a lot, Father, for how you provided for our church, how you provided for many of our missionaries, how you provided for many of us through the years in amazing ways, Father. And it's not always something as large as 50000 Sometimes it may have been something as small as $50. But you have come through in so many amazing ways that as believers, we understand that the only explanation is you and that you really do watch over your children and you provide for our needs, sometimes in amazing ways. And we cannot ever thank you enough for that. And there is a source of comfort and strength that we have, Father, because we know we can depend upon you. And we're so grateful. We pray, Lord, that in every aspect of our lives, as individuals and as a church, including our finances, will be one that will reflect the grace of Jesus Christ. May we, Father, be as generous to others as you've been to us. Help us, Father, with that, because it can be hard sometimes. But again, we pray we'll always do so with great wisdom, so that, Father, nothing will be wasted along the way. Father, we know that there may be some here this morning that they hear all these stories and they like all these stories, but they're kind of outside the circle of blessing. It's because they've rejected you all these years. I pray you help them to realize that the generosity that we speak about, the generosity that we experience from you, is, is exemplified fully in you giving Christ for us and the very real suffering that he experienced on our behalf. I pray, Lord, they would recognize what you have done for us, that they would clearly see their need for Christ because they're separated from you because of their sin, that they would confess their sin to you, Lord, seeking your forgiveness, knowing, Lord, that as you said in your word that a broken and contrite heart you will not ever turn away. And may they experience the abundance of joy that comes to those who've been forgiven. Thank you, Father, for always being there for us, beginning with but not ending with our salvation. We ask, Father, that you would help us to be a blessing to others in the coming weeks and months. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.